Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 21 through 31. So John chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You have revealed Yourself to us as a consuming fire. We pray now that the fire of Your Holy Spirit would burn within our hearts as we hear the reading and preaching of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 14, verses 21-31. through 31. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. May God bless the reading of His Holy Word, and let us sure say Amen. Do you ever talk to yourself? Do you ever ask yourself questions? In Psalm chapter 42, Mike, thank you for this. Psalm chapter 42, if you have ever talked to yourself, you are not alone. Or if you ever talk to yourself, you should read Psalm 42, because in Psalm chapter 42, the psalmist talks to himself, doesn't he? He asks himself, the same question twice. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He was talking to himself. When a soul is cast down, it is brought low. It is feeling down. It is lacking hope. A soul that is cast down is despairing of the future. A soul that is cast down is feeling depressed. And when a soul is in turmoil, that soul is feeling restless, unsteady. It's a soul that is groaning because of the afflictions 
of this life. It is a soul that is filled with sorrow. And the psalmist talks to himself and asks himself, why do you feel this way? And thankfully, he doesn't end there. He doesn't only talk to himself about being cast down and feeling low and feeling depressed and being filled with anxiety. He doesn't only talk to himself about that, but he reminds himself of the promises of God. So he not only talks to himself about the turmoil and affliction and the distress that he was feeling in his soul, but he also talks to himself, reminding himself about the character of God, the nature of God, and the promises that God has given to him. And he calls upon himself to take his eyes off of his own soul's distress and place his gaze on the God who has redeemed him, who fills him with hope, and to trust and to remember the steadfast love of the Lord and His salvation. In John chapter 14, we are studying Jesus' discourse and Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure from this world and we can expect the disciples to talk to themselves. Jesus has told them in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would He tell them that? Let not your hearts be troubled. Because their hearts were going to be troubled when Jesus departed. And He calls upon them. He tells them, you believe in God, believe also in Me. So He calls upon them to take their gaze off of themselves, their own distressed souls, their own troubled hearts, and to fix their gaze upon the God they believe in and His Messiah. And to fill that void, He gives them precious promises for their troubled hearts. We have been looking at these precious promises for troubled hearts here in John chapter 14. Uh, there are six of them I've identified. You might be able to find more, but it's just the way that I've dealt with the text. Six precious promises for troubled hearts. And they are called to preach these promises from Jesus to themselves when they are troubled. And that's what you and I are called to do as well. When our souls are troubled, we are to apprehend the promises of God for ourselves. That we not only believe that they are true, but they are true for us. We are to explain them to ourselves. We are to prove them to ourselves. We are to remind them to ourselves. We are to apply them to ourselves. We are called to preach the promises of God to our troubled hearts. We've learned about the precious promise of heaven. We've learned about the promise that Jesus is sufficient revelation. We've learned of the promise that His disciples will do greater works. We've learned about the promise of the Spirit's persevering power in our lives. And there's two more chapters, and yes, Michelle, I think I'm going to finish them today. Lord will, we'll see. Here I want you to see the fifth precious promise for troubled hearts in this passage. When you're troubled by your weak obedience, preach the promise of God's abiding love to your heart. When you are troubled by your weak 
obedience preach the promise of God's abiding love to your heart. Notice here in verse 15, we've already studied that last week, but in verse 15, Jesus told His disciples, if you love Me, you will keep what? You will keep My commandments. In verse 24, Jesus has said, if you do not love Me, you will not do what? You will not keep My commandments. And so in verse 21, Jesus picks up this theme of love and obedience and He says, whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. I want you to notice here how Jesus connects the mind and the heart in our obedience to God. What motivates us in our obedience to God? Or what should motivate us in our obedience to God? Is it fear of future judgment? Well, that might be one motivating factor. Is it a sense of duty and obligation to God that drives us to obey His commandments? Well, there should, certainly should be a sense of duty and obligation that we have as Christians to obey the sovereign king of the universe. But Jesus doesn't talk about those as motivating factors, does He? What does Jesus say is the driving motivator in our obedience to God? What is it? Look with me at your Bibles. It's there in verse 21. What is it? It's love. Love is the motivating factor for us as Christians that drives us to obey God. Our love for God and His love for us. Jesus is speaking to the heart here. If our hearts have affection and love for God, the greater and the more obedient our hearts will be. However, Jesus connects the mind to the heart here, and notice what He says, that we are to have whose commandments? We are to have His commandments. The obedience is not just to whatever we think we want to obey. We don't get to just make up our own law. We don't get to just make up our own commandments. We are called to obey whom? We're called to obey Jesus' commandments. What Jesus is talking about here is not just the, the drive of obedience from the heart, but the apprehending of God's law from the mind. That's what it means to have God's commandments. It means that we understand His commandments. We know His commandments. We study His commandments. We apprehend them with our mind. And as a result of that, as a result of a Christian whose mind apprehends the commandments of God and whose heart is motivated by love to God, as a result of that, Jesus says here in verse 21, whoever loves me will be what? Loved by my Father. Be loved by my Father. Now, you're wondering here, is Jesus saying that we earn the Father's love by our obedience to Him? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's already taught in other places in the Gospel of John that the love of the Father is logically prior to our love to Him. We love because He first, what? Loves us. But God is pleased with us when we obey Him. God delights in our obedience to Him. Not just out of a sense of duty, not just out of fear of future judgment, but when we obey Him because our hearts have a desire to obey Him. Because it is our delight 
to obey God because we love his law as the one who does that Jesus promises here that God will abide with that person look at the end of verse 21 Scholars debate on how to understand what Jesus means here. Is Jesus saying by this word manifest, is he, is he talking about his post-resurrection appearances? So is he saying to the disciples that he will manifest himself to his disciples after his resurrection? Certainly possible, it could mean that. This word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was used of the theophanies of God. The way that God, like at Mount Sinai, revealed Himself and manifested Himself to His people. So is Jesus saying that in some way there will be a great theophany for them to see? Maybe He was talking about the splendor and the glory that they would behold of the Lord Jesus Christ when He ascended up into heaven. Certainly possible as well. Context would seem to indicate, though, that what Jesus is talking about here is the promise of the Spirit. He's already promised that He would send a paraclete, another helper, and He promises it here in the next paragraph that the Holy Spirit will come. And it would, context would seem to indicate that the way that Jesus is speaking about manifesting Himself is through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. The other Judas, in verse 22, does not understand what Jesus is talking about, though. Look at his question of Jesus in verse 22. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Judas has messianic expectations. He is steeped in the teaching of the Old Testament, of, especially of the prophets, that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah crushes the head of of all the evil, wicked kings and rulers and kingdoms of the earth. That the appearing of the Messiah is grand and majestic and marvelous and wonderful and for every eye to see and for every heart to behold and for the world to know that the Messiah is the King over all the universe. And so what Judas is asking here. Is he saying, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and we believe you're the Messiah, but you're not going to manifest yourself to the world because that's what the Messiah will do. Jesus here doesn't say that Judas is wrong, by the way, does he? For this great manifestation of the glory and splendor of Jesus, it is to come, isn't it? One day every eye will see and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow at the feet of King Jesus. That is to come. So Judas is not wrong in his question here. But what Jesus answers here is in this present evil age, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And look at the end of verse 23. We will come to him and make our home with Him. This is the great promise of the prophets. The great promise that 
the almighty, holy God will come and dwell with his people. Ezekiel chapter 37 prophesied the, that the new covenant would be made, an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace. And as a result of this covenant of peace, that the presence of God, which the prophet Ezekiel saw in a vision, departing from the temple because of the idolatry in the temple, and in that grand vision of Ezekiel the prophet, he sees the glory of God returning to the temple. It is with that in mind that he says in Ezekiel 37, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. These are God's covenant people. God's covenant people didn't always act like God's covenant people, though, did they? Sometimes, more times than not, their obedience to God was weak. Their hearts didn't love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't always delight in the law of the Lord. And the great promise that they had was that a new covenant would come and they would be God's people and God would dwell with His people. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 speaks to this. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, listen to this, I will come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. I'll come and abide with you. I'll come and make my dwelling place with you. And as a result, Zechariah says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. This is the promise that the Gentiles are going to be included in the new covenant. They're going to be included in the, the covenant people of God. And that the presence of God will dwell not just with Israel anymore. But that God's presence will dwell with Jewish and Gentile Christians alike. And he concludes this great promise in Zechariah. I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What do we learn of Jesus in John chapter 1? Jesus is the eternal Word of God who does what? He has been sent from the Father. He has come down in the incarnation and has done what? Dwelled among us. We could translate that verb as tabernacle among us. That just as God... Just as God's presence dwelt among His people in the wilderness at the tent of meeting, just as God manifested His glory at Mount Sinai, just as the glory of God filled the temple when it was consecrated by King Solomon, so now Jesus has come in the flesh and dwelt among His people. And what Jesus is doing here is He's bringing this full circle and He's saying, after I depart, your obedience is growing, going to become weak. But I'm going to make a new covenant with you. So that you will desire to obey me and my presence will abide with you. I will dwell with you. Have you ever thought about the extent of God's wonderful love to us? You know, God's love is not like our love. Our love often has uh, a beginning and an end, doesn't it? 
We meet someone. A budding romance develops. Our love for that person grows and deepens. And one day, at death, that love will end. Our love is oftentimes conditional, isn't it? We, we love a friend, we love a family member, we, we love a person, an individual, but our love, because it's not like God's love, it's conditional, not unconditional. And through difficulties and hardships and conflict and sin, that love comes to an end. But God's love is not like our love. In Jeremiah 31.3, and I can't wait for Travis to preach this passage, Jeremiah 31.3, God declares, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is what He says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So what God was declaring to the people through Jeremiah the prophet was, even though your hearts don't love me as they are, and even though your obedience to me is weak, my love for you has been everlasting, therefore my covenant with you continues. Isn't that beautiful? Gerhardus Voss, a wonderful Presbyterian theologian, commented on this passage. Listen to what he wrote. In the unlimitable round of God's timeless existence, the man had a way with words. He's saying God is eternal. We have never been absent from nor uncared for by Him. So stop and think about that. When did God begin? God had no beginning, right? God is eternal. His character has always been as long as God has existed, which has been eternal. His decrees are what? Eternal. His nature is eternal. Therefore, Voss concludes with Jeremiah the prophet, His love is eternal. The proof, Voss writes, that He will never cease to love us lies in that He never begun. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. When did God begin to love, when did God begin to love you? He never began to love you. For in His eternal decrees, He has always loved you because God is eternal. His character is eternal. His nature is eternal. His decrees are eternal. And so His love for you, dear Christian, never began. And it will never cease nor end. Boss concludes here, what we are for Him and what He is for us belongs to the realm of eternal values. Without this, we are nothing. In it, we have all. That's a promise that you need to preach to your troubled heart, isn't it? God's love for us is eternal. God's love for us, it knows no end. And so often, we are troubled by our own weak obedience. And we think that God's love is like our love. That it changes. That when we're disobedient to God, that it needs to be reestablished by us. Or that we have to do something to earn our way back into God's love. 
The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, dear one, is that when He chose you from the foundations of the world, in love, He predestined you in Christ. So what God did was He looked down the tunnels of time and saw that you would reject Him and He counted the righteousness of Christ paid for you upon the cross. He reckoned it to your account in eternity past. And He predestined you in love. When you doubt God's love because of your weak obedience, preach the promises of Jesus to your troubled heart. When you're troubled by your weak obedience, when you feel like your weak obedience is a result of weak love, know that your love may be weak and frail, and it is, and so is mine. But we have a Savior whose love is eternal for us. If His love never began, His love will never end, and His love will certainly enable us to persevere to glory in this life. That's a good promise we need to preach to all hearts. What's the sixth and final promise in this passage? When you're troubled by evil in the world, preach the promise of peace to your heart. When you're troubled by evil in the world, preach the promise of peace to your heart. The great hope of the Messiah was that the Messiah would bring what? The Messiah would bring peace. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, when he talked about, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, he goes through the names that the Messiah will have, and he concludes that he will be called Prince of what? Prince of Peace. Ezekiel 37, and the promise of the new covenant. That new covenant is called a covenant of what? A covenant of peace. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, when it says that the, the glory of God will be revealed greater than the former glory, that in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And look at what Jesus says here in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. There's an old verb that we could use here that captures more accurately what Jesus is saying. It's the verb bequeath. We don't use that too often in our English anymore, but it means to bestow upon. It's yours is what Jesus is saying. Peace from Jesus is yours because He has procured it for you. He has accomplished it for you upon the cross. And so what Jesus is saying here in verse 27, He's saying, I am bestowing peace upon you. Well, why do they need peace? There's a few reasons why they need peace. I'll just run through these quickly. In verse 25, we've already talked about this. Jesus is not going to be with them much longer. And so their hearts are going to be what? Troubled. So they're going to need peace. Secondly, they need peace because the world can't give them peace. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What Jesus is saying is the world cannot give you this peace that I'm giving to you. If you search for peace in the world, you will not be able to find it. Jesus says. 
Furthermore, they're going to need peace because their faith is going to be challenged. Look with me at verse 29. Now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And so Jesus is preparing them for all that is going to happen when He's arrested and, and tried and crucified and buried. Their faith is going to be challenged. And so He wants them to be prepared for that challenge. And they're going to be prepared with His what? His peace. And lastly, and connected to all these, they need His peace because, look at verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming. So Satan is behind what's going to happen. Satan is the one who is going to be behind the plans to crucify and to kill Jesus and to disrupt the peace of the disciples. And so what Jesus is saying, I am bestowing upon you now the peace that you need through this tribulation you are about to walk through. So how is that peace possible? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 26. He's giving them the Holy Spirit. The Helper. The Paraclete. This is the one who gives them peace. He's going to send them. And He will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has said. So after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to come to the disciples now apostles, and they are going to be able to look back by the power of the Holy Spirit and understand the significance of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And some of them are even going to do what? They're going to write about it and preserve that information for us. How else is peace possible? Well, verse 28, Jesus says He's going where? He's going to His Father. And so it's necessary for Jesus to depart and return to His Father through the cross. Peace becomes accomplished for them. So that's what makes peace possible. And lastly, verse 31, Jesus says here, the result of this is so that the world may what? Know that I love the Father. And you would think that Jesus would say here that all the result of this would be that the world may know that He loves the world. Because Jesus said in John 3, 16, what? For God so loved what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. Here Jesus is bringing that full circle. And He wants the world to know that He loves the Father. What Jesus is going to endure on the hell of the cross will not look like love. Will it? For on the cross, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon Christ for our sin. The world won't think that that is love. But Jesus is vindicated by the cross. And He goes to the cross willingly in His obedience and love to the Father because of His eternal love for us as well. For the Christian, peace is not the absence of trials and hardships and tribulation. Peace is not the absence of sickness and disease. Peace is not the absence of war or political turmoil. 
in the world. Those are the world's standards of peace. That's not Christian peace. Peace isn't even the absence of grief or sorrow. Peace is the result of being reconciled to God in Christ. Our understanding of the end times, what we call eschatology, Christ returning, the final judgment, eschatology and peace go hand in hand. They're coupled together. Peace comes from knowing that Christ has already defeated death, hell, and the grave, and He will come again to establish His rule and reign on this earth. Peace for the Christian is knowing that you've been reconciled to God. Peace is described in the book of Galatians as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Like a fruit, peace grows in our life the more and more sanctified we become. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 talks about peace as a garrison. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard what? our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So peace is like a fortress for the Christian, for the heart and mind of the Christian in this present evil age. Peace, Colossians 3.15, in the life of the church is like, is like a rule for life that maintains harmony and peace in the church. Peace it's like an appetizer from heaven in this present evil age. Peace is the rest that we enjoy as Christians. Knowing that even though, as Jesus says in verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming, it's also knowing, like we learned in Romans 16 this morning, that soon the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. You ever wondered how you can have peace when there's so much evil in the world? Peace can feel so subjective at times. Tribulation and hardship and affliction and sickness and grief touch us all, don't they? But we don't grieve as others grieve. We, are, we shouldn't be in turmoil about the evil of this present evil age as others are in turmoil about this present evil age. Why? Because we know that Christ has come and bestowed upon us His peace. When we're troubled by evil in the world, we are able to preach the promise of peace to our hearts knowing that Christ has come and instituted with us a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace. We know that peace isn't bound to circumstances. Peace isn't bound to the absence of tribulation. But rather, peace is the promise that Christ gives to you and to me. That we will persevere through every tribulation in this life. It's a great promise that we need, isn't it? We're called to apprehend these promises not only as true but true for us and when our hearts are troubled we are called 
by Jesus to preach the promises to our troubled hearts. All these promises in John chapter 14 are yours, dear Christian. But this morning, if you haven't confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior, if you have not looked to Him in faith for the forgiveness of your sins, these promises are not yours. You can't preach them to yourself. There's no peace. There's no promise of perseverance. There's no mercy. There's no grace. And how can they be yours when you look to Christ? You confess Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. You abandon all other means of salvation and, and hold fastly to Him, trusting in Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And I pray this morning and you'll do that today if you haven't done that already. And if you have done that already, keep doing it. For we have a Savior who has given us precious promises for troubled hearts. Let's go to Him in prayer.